Hello and welcome to The Bravest Kind, a podcast featuring behind-the-scenes stories of fearless individuals demonstrating bravery and kindness in their everyday lives. I am your host, Ryan Schaefer, and I am a firefighter and EMT with the Kirkland Fire Department located just outside of Seattle, Washington. My guest today is Chris Garceau. Chris is a 2005 graduate of the United States Military Academy at West Point, where he played Division I hockey for the Black Knights. Chris has served two tours of duty in Iraq and attained the rank of captain prior to attending flight school. He is currently flying Chinook helicopters as a warrant officer in the Washington National Guard. Chris and I discussed the path that led him to joining the United States Army, the value of service, and the importance of persevering while doing hard things. We also talk openly about coping with the compounding mental effects often experienced by both military personnel and first responders. I would like to express my gratitude not only to Chris, but to all the men and women that have served our country. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. I have with me today, Chris Garceau. Chris, first and foremost, thank you very much for joining me on The Bravest Kind. Thank you, Rye. Honored to have been asked. Um, you know, after hearing a few of your podcasts so far, it's evident that there's you know so many stories to be told. For you to bring it all together for good, it's really special to watch unfold. So I'm just as much proud of you as, you know, you claim to be proud of me. So nice work. Well, I appreciate that very much. And yes, uh, absolutely am very proud of you and honored that you would join me. Uh, For those out there listening today, uh, Chris is also my brother-in-law, married to my younger sister, Mackenzie. And they have two beautiful kids with a third on the way. Holy cow. How are you guys feeling about that? Number three. You ready? It's going to be a, yeah, as you know, it's going to be a trip. But uh, no, I mean, as, as you're very much aware and, uh, and your family is, you know, it's just so much emphasis on family within your yep. family and mine. Uh, just having another little one run, run around is just going to be super special. We're, we're definitely fortunate, you know, to be in that position as you know, many aren't. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, we can't wait. Thanksgiving day. Thanksgiving Day, that'll be a good one. Well, and there's a lot of meaning behind Thanksgiving Day, I know, for you and your family, because that's right around the time of year that your dad, Peter, passed yeah. years back at Thanksgiving. So that'll be a special, a special time. So Chris, let's talk a little bit here. I want to give our listeners a little bit of a background uh, about you. You grew up in Connecticut and you, I know, just super athletic guy and played a lot of sports uh, growing up and continue uh, being very active. But I know your real uh, passion and love was and is uh, hockey. And you played Division One hockey for West Point. Curious as to your decision to attend West Point. I know you don't come from a military family. I've talked to you before that you had other opportunities, other scholarship offers to other elite uh, D1 hockey programs. What drew you to attending West Point? Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that I, I didn't really have any family background in the military. I didn't know until I was considering the academy that both of my grandfathers served, hmm. um, you know, one in Korea uh, okay. on a ship in the Navy and then the other in World War II at Anzio. Um it just was never really talked about yeah. or, you know, I don't know if nobody really ever wanted to talk about it and, mm-hmm. or they had no interest in hearing the stories or, um, you know, we were just young kids and we never really knew what, what that was all about. But yeah. so when you say you no know, family history, yeah, I didn't have, you know, a father who served, uh, like many of the, uh, the attendees of the military Academy or, you know, it was a family lineage situation, mm-hmm. 
Um, but yeah, uh, hockey <laughs> was everything growing up for me. Uh, I just loved everything about that sport. And, um, you know, like you said, as far as sports go, you name it, I played it, but I, I just never felt the buzz the way I did when I laced up those skates. And, and it's a lot bigger on the East coast uh, mm-hmm. than it is out here. Um, but I guess I just realized that I wasn't half bad at a young age. Um, and you know, that realization, uh, you know, I think my parents also realized that and, uh, and just sacrificed like any parent would probably everything that they could to give me an, an opportunity to excel and potentially, you know, continue to play in college and beyond. And, and that's kind of the, the course of my childhood with that sport. It was just amazing. I mean, you're really, uh, I mean, you're, you're not, you're not half bad at anything. I, I think you're, you're, <laughs> you're pretty much a natural at just about everything you do, but talk to me about West Point specifically, Chris. I mean, what sure. drew you there? I'm, I know you have a lot of, uh, a lot of pride, uh, having gone to West Point and, uh, served for the army and, um, something that I very much respect about you. What was that pull going to a military academy? Yeah, well, I, I mean, I went on a few official visits. Uh, you know, I also went to the Air Force Academy, checked that mm-hmm. out. Uh, and I just feel like nothing ever came close to the allure that I got when I, you know, went to West Point and, and, and you know, learned about what it stood for and all that. Uh, I just, if you're indifferent to serving in the military, and we'll talk about this, um, but I, I feel like just going to that campus takes every excuse not to mm-hmm. want to attend and just throws it away. Mm-hmm. I, 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 as an 18 year old looking to be challenged, you know, I mean, just graduating high school and potentially going on to play sports in college, um, you know, free, incredible schooling, division one athletics, beautiful campus, guaranteed employment. Um, it, it's, and you also get this feeling like if I don't attend, could I have made it right? Mm-hmm. So it's, mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. I, I, I got my nomination, passed my physical, was recruited, got accepted, and I, I never looked back. Yeah. Um, and, and obviously at this point, I don't, I don't regret that decision one bit. Oh, well, no, absolutely not. I know it's been a, a big, a, a big driving force throughout your entire adult life and continues to be. So you do your four years at West Point, you played hockey there. What happens after graduating? from West Point, both in, in, in general with uh, with all students there, and then you specifically, what was your path following graduation? Yeah, sure. So uh, I guess if we rewind a little bit to my freshman year, uh, I went to West Point in a peacetime environment. Mm-hmm. I, I applied in a peacetime environment. Um, you know, the place is touting peacetime, officer, military, um, you know, there, there was no war. There was no Iraq, Afghanistan. And then mm-hmm. it was September 11th of my freshman year that that all changed. Oh, wow. So it, it was a very much different plan than I had, uh, you know, I had anticipated. And then at graduation, it was, you know, okay, this is, it's game on now. Um, we're going to go train you up to be, uh, to your basic course in whatever uh, branch that you decided to go. And mine was specifically artillery. Um, and, uh, and it's, it's road to war. It's training, training officers to lead soldiers in combat at this point. Um, I, I have a little bit of an unconventional path coming out of graduation. Normal, um, normal graduates will just go to their basic course and then, uh, find their units within six months to a year. I, 
volunteered, um, you know, I actually very much wanted this to, to stay behind as a graduate assistant athletic intern for the academy and the okay. ice hockey team. So that was a, um, a fun experience. So, you know, while everyone else was at their basic course, I was, you know, at the rink, um, <laughs> recruiting yeah. high schoolers sure, and still able uh, to pursue that passion. Practice. Yeah. yeah. So that was a, that was a lot of fun, but yeah, at that point when that was over, um, it was off to, to Fort Sill, Oklahoma to learn how to be an artilleryman. And then it was off to joint base Lewis McCord, which was then Fort Lewis in Washington, uh, to take over my first platoon. Let me backtrack for just a second. It's interesting. I, I don't know that I realized 9-11 occurred during your freshman year. What was the vibe like around campus at that time? So you enter school, we're in uh, peacetime, as you said, and then all of a sudden, September 11th happens, 2001. I mean, that had to have been right smack at the beginning there of your college years. What was the energy like around campus when that occurred? That's a good question. I, I think there was a lot of ambiguity. I mm-hmm. think that there was uh, certainly, you know, some fear that we could, you know, be a target uh, potentially. I think there was, um, and this seems kind of a little crass maybe, but some excitement mm-hmm. that, you know, the graduates would now have an opportunity to, to you know, if you want to call it, prove yourself or mm-hmm. just go out and, uh, and, and, you know, pay, pay your dues um all those things just a whole lot of emotions probably like anywhere in the united states at the time uh a lot of pride and you know the fact that we chose west point and now you know we're, we're looked upon as you know the place that will train the officers to, to to defend the nation um i i remember exactly where i was in the class uh you know in the morning when it all happened and everyone's just kind of wondering what's going to happen next they locked us down for for half the day um, um until, you know, the country kind of realized what was going on. Yeah, surreal. Oh, man, I can, I can only imagine. What about your family? What, what were things <laughs> like? You know, so I, I, I don't know what kind of trepidation, if any, your parents had about you going to West Point, and then this happens right away. Was there concern from your parents at all? What kind of conversations were you having with them? Yeah, I... I don't really remember. I, I imagine all of the same emotions that I felt and all the cadets felt. My parents probably felt the same thing with, you know, an added sense of, um, you know, having a child in that position, mm-hmm. uh, which I now realize. Uh, so, uh, you know, it wasn't, they knew that I was, you know, I guess you could say protected for the next four years uh, as an attendee of the institution and not an actual officer in a live army. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and we didn't know what we were doing at that point. So sure. it was just constant communication back and forth. And they very much thought, you know, that they can maybe learn a little bit more than the average person by, um, by talking to us, but we had no idea what we were doing either. So yeah, I, I don't imagine they had any, um, or, you know, maybe they did any, any more information on what was going on or more emotion or less emotion than I did or anybody else did at the time. Yeah. So talk to me about your first deployment. When did that occur? And give us a lay of the land of circumstances surrounding that and uh, some of the responsibilities that you had. Um, okay. So yeah, we uh, came out here and I was uh, a platoon leader with uh, first, it was a uh, an aviation unit. Then I transferred over to um, 
uh, we call it a striker unit in the army. And all that means is we were, uh, our, our main mode of transportation, our main mission was to, to, uh, drive strikers around whatever environment that we find ourselves in. They're, um, just kind of a newer age tank, I guess mm-hmm. you could say with wheels. So the first deployment was in 2007 at the end, tail end of 2007 into 2008. Uh, we were training up expecting to get extended. And what that means is normal deployments are a year. They're talking 15 to 18 months uh, overseas. We were going to just Northeast of Baghdad. And it was, uh, uh, you know, they called it the Sunni Triangle. It's a pretty dangerous spot um, in Iraq. And it was just, you know, we were on the heels of President Bush's order for surge, increased troop uh, limits and effectiveness over, over in Iraq at the time. And that's all we really knew. We knew we were going over there to kind of control some land and um, win hearts and minds and survive and make it back home and hopefully make a lasting impact. And it was, uh, it was a trip. <laughs> Do you feel like all of those things were accomplished? Um, I feel like, yes, they were. Um, I feel like it's really hard to, it's really hard to talk about, uh, you know, war and policy in Iraq. Um, mm-hmm. you know, when you're just, a small piece of that right so i'm not at the strategic level and i'm not making policy and whether or not um we should have been there we shouldn't have been there we were there um and we were doing everything we could at the the smallest level possible which is um you know going into uh, people's homes and 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 trying to create an environment of accountability and um and dispel fear and uh, try to bring an economy back to normal and uh, try as best we can to democratize a situation that um, has been very volatile and and violent for so long. So did we accomplish what we were there to do? I I mean, uh, I'm not sure. Uh, I believe that we left it a better place than, than we found it specifically in my unit, but that's all I can account for. Sure. And then Chris, so you come back from that first deployment. I say first, cause I know, um, I know you've done two deployments and we'll talk a little bit about that more here in a moment, but you come back from that. And then I know at some point you joined the special forces unit. Walk me through that. You, you, you return and then how long until you join that, uh, elite forces group and what are the steps and process to, to becoming a member of the special forces? Yeah. So, I mean, a lot came out of that deployment, um, which we'll probably get into just, just a lot of life lessons and, um, just perspective changes. Mm -hmm. Uh, and I think one of the more solidifying, uh, perspective changes I had was, you know, really the only things that, that you feel that you can look back on and are the most rewarding things are the things that get you a little uncomfortable and just a little bit harder than, um, than, uh, you'd want to find yourself in. And so I, having survived that deployment, um, I came back and I was uh, selected for a general's aide de camp position, which is, you know, basically an assistant to, to general's the highest ranking member of, you know, the army or the military, uh, specifically on Fort Lewis. He was a Green Beret and I just uh, would hear stories and listen to him talk and uh, all the things he touted about the Green Berets and the special forces community just made me want to be a part of that. Mm-hmm. 
And he uh, and he sent me to airborne school or learn how to jump out of airplanes and then sent me to special forces selection. Obviously, I needed to want it and he didn't force me to go. Um, and I was selected. I didn't actually uh, attend the qualification course for the Green Beret, which is a language uh, course. And then, um, and then they have their, their tactics training where, you know, you just get the, the added, uh, training to, to make you into one of those elite officers. I was, uh, I was sitting in an office kind of waiting for my course to start when, uh, they asked if anyone wanted to go to flight school instead. So that's where my career took a turn. Gotcha. Okay. Well, I was going to, I was going to ask you about that because, uh, yes, you are, a Chinook helicopter pilot. So that was the moment, Tom. Was that the fork in the road that led you down that path then towards becoming a pilot? Yeah, I I, I left the Special Forces community not because I don't believe in it or it's not something I wanted to do. I very mm-hmm. much wanted to do that. Yeah. And I was dead set on it. Um, it came down to a decision. Do, do I want to fly or, or not? Yeah. And um, I, I feel like there definitely would have been some incredible opportunities and experiences to serve as a Green Beret in the United States Army. I mean, we're talking about one of the most leading fighting forces on planet Earth. Um, and the training they get is second to none. I just, I wish I could have been able to do both and I, and I can't. Yeah. So I looked at flying as um, just such an incredibly specialized, technical and transferable um career path a life maybe outside the military one day mm-hmm. and uh i thought for sure this would be something i would enjoy so flight school it was and how was it decided upon you flying chinooks do you have any say in the matter on which uh, type of a chopper you're flying or is that decided for you so you do if you're active duty i had gotten off active duty at that point mm-hmm. i wanted to try my hand at uh you know being a, a civilian soldier um you know playing military one weekend a month and then, uh, and then, um, you know, work in a civilian job. So in, in, in the activity environment, you get on a flight school and order of merit determines your aircraft and then you get selected or you select, uh, after all the grades are in, in the, in the guard. I mean, this is a, uh, it's a nice luxury. You don't have to worry about order of merit as much. Um, the it's predetermined. And then sometimes guys will actually get down there and then they'll say, Hey, we need this instead. So I knew I was flying Chinooks, uh, before I even got on the plane to head down to Fort Rucker, which is nice. What's the most exhilarating aspect of being a Chinook helicopter pilot? Um, and just a pilot in general, um, so much power and capability in your hands and the army, I mean, probably any military, um, organization that deals with aircraft, they push the limit. Mm-hmm. on these machines and it takes a lot of skill. So I, I mean, you could say it's exhilarating to me, you know, hopping in and out of turbulence or flying into uh, landing zones in a combat environment, all that's crazy. But just generally, um, I just like the idea of, of the, you're always improving Mm-hmm. Um, it's never like, I, f- I feel like it's, it's, it's a non-masterable skill. If that's yeah. the word. I just, uh, I mean, just thinking back the first time I sat in that seat with the instructor next to me and you're just trying to keep yourself on the airfield uh, with just one component of, 
of the aircraft control, you know, just the, the joystick or we call it the, uh, the cyclic, mm-hmm. you're just trying to stay basically like on a football field, uh, without, um, you know, rolling the thing over. And then you have all these, Oh yeah, baby moments where, <laughs> uh, you know, you, 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 sh- you tighten the shot group, um, sort of speak and you're able to kind of hover and, and that's exhilarating. Just being able to, to hone those skills over the years has been a lot of fun. Um, I mean, the military's MO is, you know, let's create an environment where these guys and gals are uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. Um, so they never want you to get complacent. They never sure. uh, are going to put you in the position where you feel like you can kind of settle in and you're an expert at something. And and I both appreciate that. And then it's also, you know, a little bit of a burden um, on, on any branch or any expertise. So is it fun all the time? Absolutely not. But, uh, perspectively when you, you know, take a step away from the aircraft after a, a good day of flying, it's, uh, it puts a smile on your face. For oh, sure. man. I can only imagine. Well, one of the more memorable experiences that I've had through your, especially through your service in the military is the opportunity to be a passenger in a Blackhawk, <laughs> yeah. which was super cool. That took off from JBLM and, yeah. uh, did a nice little uh, cruise up the, up the coastline, uh, over the sound. And, uh, it was really neat. I had that much fun being a passenger, so I couldn't imagine, uh, being a pilot of, uh, of one of those, being a Blackhawk, a Chinook, what have you. You talked about transitioning to the guard and, uh, being more of a, a civilian. Did you consider a career in the military? Did, did, was, was that something that was ever on your radar following West Point? Never once on Never my once. radar, Ryan. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, I just didn't feel like it was something I wanted to do. My, yeah. uh, you know, maybe it's just the lion's share of my young adult to mm-hmm. adult life. Um, it, it's one of those things where you're always thinking back. Um, you know, you think back to like your high school science class and you're looking at your teacher like, oh man, if I ever find myself in his shoes 20 years from now <laughs> kind of thing. And, mm-hmm. Um, but as you, as you go through these experiences and, and what it gives you and, um, and I, I feel like there's for every year you're in or every experience you have, there's just an elevated sense of pride and, um, and just kind of this, you know, brother or sisterhood that, um, it's hard to step away from. Yeah. And then, you know, certainly the army or whatever branch you're in will, will dangle a carrot in front of your face, the next school or the next sure. opportunity or the next position. But, uh, no, 16 plus years in, and I still don't, uh, feel like I'm ready to make this a career. Yeah. <laughs> well, it seems like you've got a nice balance between the two. Chris and I started a, a CrossFit gym together. Uh, you now have really dove into a career as a uh, mortgage lender and you still, you still get to fly and you still uh, are involved in the guard. So it seems like a nice, a nice balance between the two worlds that you have going on right now. Yeah, I agree. So I obviously didn't know you during that, uh, the first appointment that you did, but you were married to McKinsey and we had started up that CrossFit gym at the time of your second deployment to Iraq, which at that time you did fly, uh, Chinooks over there. How did those two deployments differ? Um, I mean, night and day, I mean, Mm. obviously literally just by the fact that I was flying on my second and and I was on the ground on my first, Mm -hmm. um, that, that first deployment was, was brutal. 
the second one, um, having a spouse and um, being away from family was, was, you know, grueling, of course, but I had already experienced it on the first one. And, and that was nothing I had ever experienced before. And, and it was just a much more hostile environment back in 2007, mm-hmm. eight than it was uh, in 15, 16. Sure. So um, very, very different experiences. And, you know, although you're still in a combat environment and I'm flying a, a very dangerous machine in a combat environment, um, there's, there's a level of danger there. I just never felt like it was as elevated as it was back on the first one. Well, let's talk about that for a moment. Yeah. Were there any moments of true terror on either of those deployments where you fear for your life? Yeah, I feel like the second one uh, where I was flying, the, the the terror came with just, you know, hoping that the machine would withstand any of the, um, you know, whether it be small arms fire we'd see in the air or just being able to to stay in one piece yeah. uh, day after day. That was that was really the scariest part. But um, uh, the first deployment, very, very different. So I think that, um, I mean, you never really, talk about this mostly because it's just unrelatable like people just can't relate to to what it's like unless you've been there and you know the feeling as a firefighter uh if i show pictures people usually just say oh wow Mm -hmm. you know that's dangerous jeez Uh, and then they just go about their day yeah um and, and every war is different right they all have a component that seems to separate them from the next so, you know, trenches or mortars or, uh, or nuclear weapons or gases. Well, uh, in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, at the time, the focus, the focus was the improvised explosive device. Mm-hmm. So, um, you know, deep buried or sometimes not uh, bombs in the road was the most effective way to kill U.S. servicemen. And yeah. Uh, our Department of Defense knew that, and so did the enemy. So, so the goal for protection was IED detection and defeat, and um, and that was that was hard to deal with. It was killing soldiers um, daily, and it was very effective. So, sheer terror for that deployment. I was on the road every single day, mm. um, and. In some, I, I talked about in enforcing change and creating change in that environment. Um, and in many ways, it just feels like you're just trying to survive yeah. getting from A to B. And yeah. um, I very much came to peace. I mean, as you know, I'm, I'm strong in my faith. There's mm-hmm. prayers, that, you know, yeah. very often, um, numerous times in the day. And, I came to peace with the fact that I might not make it home. Hmm. And it's, it's like, imagine you're in an airplane about to crash uh, as you're on the road, scanning for these improvised explosive devices. You you never know when they're going to come. And if they do come and the plane does crash, uh, are you going to survive? Maybe, maybe not. So um, that's terrifying to think about. And, and that's what it was like uh, every single day. Wow. You were there. We would scan for inconsistencies in the road, um, but we have no idea where these things are buried, and, and the enemy knows that we're scanning yeah. for inconsistencies, yeah. so they're covering them up as best they can. Uh, so, yeah, it's terrible. 
So Chris, that leads me to a topic that I wanted to talk about. And you, you just mentioned about how people can't really relate and don't know. And I have uh, talked about this on some other episodes and some of the parallels uh, with the fire service for sure and seeing traumatic calls. And you do create this brotherhood and sisterhood uh, in the fire service. And I know with the military as well, because you're, you're sharing these experiences with these people who are the only other ones that really know what it's like. I want to talk to you a little bit about coping and returning to life back home following these deployments and being under this kind of stress on a daily basis, especially like you said, that first deployment and looking for these inconsistencies and with IEDs. Uh, June happens to be Men's Health and PTSD Awareness Month. Uh, I know that PTSD is a very real and serious issue uh, amongst U.S. military personnel as well as first responders. I actually just did a interview for Q13 News the other day uh, that is really uh, hitting upon the topic of PTSD amongst first responders. So I just want to talk to you about returning to civilian life after a deployment and what is that like and how did you cope and how do you continue to cope? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> one thing I've learned about PTSD is, is the triggers are different for everyone. Mm-hmm. And, and there's no, I, I don't know if there's a way to know whose symptoms will take over their life and, mm-hmm. and whose won't. Um, the military definitely has realized this and I think has tried um, in many ways to, to help solve this issue, which, you know, whether or not it's solvable, I'm not sure. Yeah. Um, some people need the thrill uh, on the heels of something like that. So they tried, you know, booking these small trips where, where soldiers would be able to you know, j- jump out of airplanes or um, go shoot stuff or whatever. Some people need conversation. Some people need medicine. Um, but it's a real thing, you know? And, and um, for me, uh, coming home, I, I never, I mean, I would think about things often, mm-hmm. but it was never night tremors. Uh, mm-hmm. It was never uh, anything where I felt like I needed to lean on um you know, a substance or anything right. like that to, to cope. I had a hard time driving hmm. without scanning roads oh, for a long time, yeah, yeah. small swerves, uh, hyper awareness of people and what they're wearing uh, or, you know, could potentially be underneath, um, which was probably very normal at the time. But uh, for me, and this is not the case for everyone, it was just time. Yeah. It faded for me because. And one of the things that I attribute this to, and, and this may not, you know, be a reason why it didn't um, manifest itself uh, like it does in other people. I grew up playing relatively violent sports. Um, I felt like I had somebody to talk to and, and mm-hmm. God, and mm-hmm. um, I just maybe knew how to process it in that way. So I, I don't know if there's one reason why it, I wasn't affected as much as other people, um, because we're certainly seeing the same things in the same situations. So I don't have an answer on, on yeah. what that is, but uh, but I know it's real. This isn't something that you or I talk about regularly, uh, if at all, but I don't 
doesn't seem as though it's something that you struggle with on a day-to-day basis. Do you have, are there any lingering effects at all for you? I know you talked about time and especially after that first deployment coming back and scanning the roads. Is there anything that occasionally gets you out of the blue that triggers you or, or is that not really even in your, in your psyche at this point? Um, I would, I would like to claim it's not in my psyche. Yeah. I, and I don't know if this is the case for everybody, but loud, loud explosions, mm-hmm. loud noises that I'm not expecting are yeah. certainly, um, but I, I, I feel like everybody would, you know, would flinch if they heard something like I, that. I hear you. You know, our tones at the fire station to alerters of a call yeah. are, are jarring. And sometimes I'll be out in public and it'll be, I, I don't know. I, I was at a grocery store not long ago and there was I think like something over the intercom or something in it. It startled me where I just I got this little shot of adrenaline thinking that it was the tones going off at the station. So it's, oh. it's just it's funny you say that because that is the one thing that gets me a little bit, too, is this sound that's a, that shouldn't be there, you know, out in public in day to day life and uh, where it will give me like a quick dump of adrenaline thinking that I have a call I have to go to. So that makes total sense. And I mean, I, I feel like. Well, and this is probably the case for a lot of servicemen and women and, and you know, anybody who's in public service that, you know, puts himself in a position of danger uh, mm-hmm. from time to time there, it took a long time for me to, to get rid of this feeling of resentment for mm-hmm. the common citizen mm-hmm. who would take advantage of, you know, and not necessarily even take advantage, but just kind of reap the benefits of society mm-hmm. where in my mind they hadn't contributed. Mm-hmm. Right. And, and, and that's not something that I would ever expect nor do I feel that way, but um, you can imagine. Sure. You're putting your you life know, out there on the line for everyone sure. to have these benefits and these freedoms. And then, yeah, when it's uh, like you said, even though it's a, a, a choice you made that, that still doesn't change that fact and i think you're the one that's yeah you know you're the one that's putting yourself out there yeah 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 so so i i often think about the guys coming back from the wars in vietnam who didn't Mm. have yeah that choice right and then um and how hard that must have been and that's kind of one of the uh the things that i've been just so thankful for uh over the last 15 years of uh of service is just the amount of uh I guess, gratitude that people have mm-hmm. in, in our service, mm-hmm. whether or not they agree with policy, they'll, yeah. they'll thank a soldier. And I think that uh, that's something I will always um, talk to my kids about and uh, expect from them. Yeah. Having been in that position. Yeah. yeah. No, absolutely. 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 It does seem like there's a, a heightened level of, uh, of respect for the men and women that have served and rightfully so. Chris, you're somebody that, seems to like to take on big challenges, extreme challenges. Talk to me about the value of doing hard things. You, you, you mentioned that the army likes to make people continuously uncomfortable, right? To continue to grow and develop. So you mentioned that a little bit ago. And I think just your nature in general as somebody that is willing to uh, tackle these difficult tasks and to live in the pain cave. So just want to hear a little bit about your belief on the benefit of doing hard things. Yeah, sure. I mean, for me, it's simple. Um, I, I mean, and now I, I feel like the literature has become a little bit more prolific on, uh, on the value of hard things and the value of uh, ex- mistakes through experience. Um, at least I've seen it more, more often 
the most rewarding things will come from the hardest pursuits. I don't think that there's any doubt uh, about that. And one of the things the special forces community always talks about is the 80, 80 year old version of yourself mm. sitting in a rocking chair, looking mm. back on your life, you know, what things have you done that put a smile on your face in that moment in time? And, uh, you know, it's never the things you buy. It's, it's the, the people that you're around that you created those relationships, those lasting longing, um, relationships and the hard things that, that you've done that you've learned from and um, can feel good about and, and have pride in. So yeah. I just uh, always kind of fall back on that. And, and I, I know you do as well. I just, uh, I just feel that it's, um, you know, kind of simple way to, to pursue a lasting and fulfilling life. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, anything, anything worth doing usually is, is not the easiest path. I, I had no idea about that of the special forces. I often would go to that default, especially in my mid twenties, as I was really trying to figure out life and really wanting to almost carve a little bit of a unique path for myself and moving down to Los Angeles and uh, pursuing some uh, things in the entertainment industry down there. And I, I, w- I would always think about that. Well, what, what do I want my life to look like when I am older and retired? And like you said, sitting on the rocking chair and looking back on it and not wanting to regret those things that I did not attempt. If you have an itch, scratch it. And so I, d- I didn't realize that was a common theme within special forces. Yeah, I think it's actually probably one of their recruiting tools, to be yeah. honest. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> maybe that's, maybe I saw it. Maybe I saw it once upon a time. It's, it's not, you're not going to be able to do everything. You're not no, going to be able to have every, not. and you're not going to want to do all the no. hard things all the time. No. But just having that in the back of your mind that, uh, mm-hmm. that to put, you know, you put a little effort into something and you make some mistakes, uh, it's growth, right? It's not, it shouldn't be seen as failure. Um, and, and I think that's a very valuable lesson. And, and the, the whole mindset theme that's out there now is, uh, I feel like that's gotten me uh, out of situations just mentally and emotionally that, uh, that I wouldn't otherwise, you know, have thought about. So mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think it's a good, good fallback perspectively. Obviously, you're a helicopter pilot. I know you're an awesome both snow skier. I've also seen you behind the boat uh, in the water. Great there. You are into kiteboarding. And yeah, you're out on your foil. Uh, what, is it foil? What, what's the actual name of that when you're doing the foil? <laughs> yeah, so, so it's a hydrofoil. It's a hydrofoil technology that uh, sits underneath the board. Got it. Um, that creates lift under the water. And you'll see in the America's Cup now, it's kind of uh, nice. becoming a, a mainstream yeah, sport, which is just so much fun. Uh, dude, I, I know you're super into it, and I need to get out there with you. Uh, hopefully, <laughs> this summer to to learn the ropes. Unfortunately, I, I probably will not be nearly as uh, graceful or natural as you. What's out there that you've always wanted to do but have yet to do so in the in the adventure realm? Yeah, I, I haven't flown a not flown, but been flown into. A, uh, a ski environment. So mm-hmm. hella skiing would be something on my list that I'd want to, want to take on if ever the chance. Uh, but man, I am just so into, uh, life on the water these days, kiteboarding. And as you said, you know, wing foiling, things like that. And, um, you know, just being able to get into some of these maneuvers that these guys are pulling off, you know, 50 plus, plus feet in the air with loops and, 
I mean, I'm pursuing that big time right yeah. now. So I don't really have anything else on my radar for the foreseeable future. <laughs> How soon till I'm doing 50 foot loops with you, Garcia? A uh, couple months, <laughs> my man. <laughs> get some time out there. That's all we need. Okay. Is, that a, uh, is that a guarantee that I'm going to get in writing? No guarantee. <laughs> no, I'm, yeah, I've been doing this for what, like 10 years now. I'm still pushing about 20 feet on a good day. But, yeah. uh, you know, I, I think that, uh, this isn't a, a podcast on kiteboarding, but I, I feel like that sport has just taken off and it's yeah. just, just so fun. And, um, as you, you know, I, I've done a lot of the, the, the sports, the, the thrill sports. I mean, I mm-hmm. just, I get it. I love it. I love skiing. I love, you know, the behind the boat stuff. And I, um, I just, you know, this kind of brings it all into one package, yeah. you know, and like the, the, it's, it's just, endless limits for for what you can do so that's why i enjoy it so much chris what do you want for your kids as they grow up i mentioned that you're a father too you have a third on the way is the military a route that you would encourage or want to see your kids pursue what do you what's your hope as a father for your children gosh that's a good question um I don't know the answer to the military part. I certainly think that there's a lot of value uh, in service and whether it be military or something else, mm-hmm. you know, maybe what you do. Mm-hmm. I, I, I definitely would pursue that if, if they had interest. I don't necessarily think that's a requirement for, um, you know, for being a successful or, or functional adult. But uh, as far as for my family goes, um, things I can control are, are opportunity to both experience things and, and for them to learn from those experiences. You know, that's all I can really provide. Um, the things that would make me a very proud dad. Uh, and I think that it would make Mackenzie a very proud mom, um, a love for God, their mm-hmm. family and, uh, and respect for their parents, not because we demand it, but because we've earned it. Mm. Um, and you know the ability to know what's right and choose the harder right over over the easier wrong mm. when the mm-hmm. time comes uh and then of course you know probably like most parents uh a strong passion for something doesn't ne- necessarily need to be sports but sports education music arts uh that will motivate them to to practice and and make mistakes and and learn the value of and lesson of humility yeah uh, i think is all we can really do for our children right absolutely it's well said okay chris what advice would you give to yourself if you could have a conversation with the 20 year old version of chris garcelle 20 year old version of myself Mm -hmm. um continue doing what you're doing because you're going to meet such a lovely lady when (laughs) you're about 27 years old (laughs) she's going to change your life uh, for the better in so many ways. I mean, the things I have learned from your sister uh, are, are just, gosh, it's amazing. And I know she takes a lot of these lessons from from your family in general, just the kindness and generosity mm-hmm. and compassion and love for everything. And and I, I feel like she's unshakable. Um, it's just been so special. Yeah. And I'm, I'm so grateful for that because it's so hard to find a good spouse Um, you know, just seeing all my friends in that position. So continue on that path. Um, and, uh, you know, you could talk about all the financial wisdom that would have set yourself (laughs) up a little bit better at the time, (laughs) save that money and, um, you know, and, and continue to invest in yourself 
um, reading and, and, and experiences, I think it's very important. A non-living thing that you cannot live without. Oh, uh, non-living thing that I can't live without. Um, gosh, I guess this changes now that I have children, but, uh, I don't think I would have had the life that I I've had without a good pair of ice hockey skates and a stick. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't that funny? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that took you, I mean, that, that took you to West Point and basically set the course for your adult life. It is weird thinking about that stuff, isn't it? These decisions that we make as... I mean, even now, I, I even probably the stuff that I'm exposing my kids to with sports or other activities and, you know, what do they gravitate towards and then where could that potentially lead them uh, down the road? It, it, yeah, it, that kind of stuff is amazing to think about. Sure. You are happiest when? Oh, man, that's a good question. I am happiest when um, I'm in now when my my spouse Mackenzie is happy. I feel like the perfect day for me would be my entire family and extended family Mm. on a beach somewhere. Mm. The kids are not necessarily grown, but for, for whatever reason, they learned how to kiteboard or water (laughs) ski or whatever. And we're all out on the water having the best darn time and everyone's smiling. And, uh, you know, I just come back to the beach all safe and, um, you know, tell stories into the evening about, um, everything that we've done and, and want to do in life, I, I feel like that's, uh, that makes me so happy. And then, um, and then even, you know, more now than any other time, it's just, you know, uh, making my mother proud of mm. the man I have become. And I know my father, uh, the same thing, but, uh, you know, that is, it's been a hard road these last few years yeah. watching her, you know, having yeah. to live without my dad. Mm-hmm. Um, so anytime she's happy watching my, me or the grandkids or, or anything, um, a smile on her face, you know, lights me up. Well, I have no doubt that she is very proud of the man that you have become. So you can rest easy with that. And <laughs> your idea of happiness sounds great, especially when you mentioned the extended family portion. Cause I hope to think <laughs> yeah. that I'm in that scenario as well. You definitely are. I might be just back at the beach watching the whole time. We'll see how these, uh, how these foil lessons go. All right. You have to do something you're scared to do. What is your process of quieting that fear and proceeding anyways? Um, if, if I see, if I'm staring fear uh, in the eyes, I, I fall back on, if there's an ability to prepare, it's time to do so. Uh, you know, I said, I'm going to do it. Let's do it. I, um, you know, I, I guess I just, uh, I put myself in the best p- position I can uh, in preparedness mm-hmm. and then trust, uh, trust in God that it'll work out, you know, the way it's supposed to. And, uh, and know that all I can do is, is, you know, give it my best. Yeah. All right. Final question for you. What does being brave mean to Chris Garceau? I think uh, just to kind of tie a bow on this circle back to what we were talking about with, um, with your ability to process failure and mistakes and uh, turn it into opportunities for growth. I think that that's the the bravest thing that you can be. I mean, I don't necessarily 
think that walking into a dark room of our uncertainty is is brave. I think that um, you know being in a position uh, where you're humble enough to know that there's a potential for uh, mistakes or vulnerability or whatever you want to call it, and uh, being able to to turn that into a mindset of, of growth and opportunity is, is bravery. Yeah, absolutely. Chris, thank you so much, not only for your time today and uh, sharing a little bit about yourself, but certainly for all of your years of service with the army, very much gratitude for you and for all the men and women that have served. So thank you so much. And I look forward to many more adventures here in the future with you. My man, it's been a pleasure. Thank you for everything that you're doing and uh, and definitely the same. I can't, can't wait for the things to come in All our right. lives. Looking forward to it. Many good things lie ahead. All right, we'll All talk right. to you love soon, you, Chris. All right, love you too, buddy. Okay. All right, thank Bye. you. See you. And that's a wrap on this episode of The Bravest Kind with your host, Ryan Schaefer. Be sure to check out my website, ryanshafer.com. That's R-Y-A-N-S-H-E-A-F-F-E-R.com for more podcast episodes and information happening in my world. Also, don't forget to subscribe to The Bravest Kind Podcast. And if you feel so inclined, please take a moment to leave us a rating for the show. We'll be back at it with a new guest next week. Until then, be brave and be kind in your own lives. 